Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another edition of our Roots Running Sessions podcast. 2020 clearly presented a number of challenges, both in and out of the sport, with limited racing opportunities, and those that did occur being smaller, more isolated events. Our athletes really had to take advantage of any starting line they found themselves on. This was even more critical for Noah Drotti, who missed the Olympic trials with an injury and only had the marathon project to make up for an otherwise lost year of racing. With help from teammate Frank Lara pacing the top group through just over 20 miles at the event, Noah ended up running a huge 2 minute and 33 second PR, finishing in 209.09, which now ranks him the number 9 fastest all time among U.S. men's marathoners. None of this would have been possible without the help from Josh Cox and Ben Rosario, who took on the challenge of hosting a marathon safely during the pandemic and giving us and all the competitors in the event an opportunity to close out 2020 with a bang. In this episode, I sit down with Noah and Frank to talk about the year, what led to the marathon project, how the race unfolded, and where we go from here. Hope you enjoy this conversation, and once again, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you for, for entertaining me on this Boxing Day. Um, I was looking forward to sitting down with both of you, kind of recapping the magical nature of what was last weekend. Um, both of you had a hand in making the race one of the more entertaining ones that I think U.S. distance running has seen in a long time. Uh, Frank being a pacer, Noah obviously being runner-up in a in a really fast time. So, um, I appreciate the two of you taking the time out of the holiday to, to sit down kind of chat through it and then chat about some of the stuff coming up. So you're welcome. Thanks for having us. All right. So to start marathon project was this last weekend for those that weren't following at home, uh, Noah finished runner up in a blazing two Oh nine Oh nine. Frank was one of the official pacers of that two Oh nine group. Uh, taking the the men through 18, 19 miles, and then hanging in there through about 21. Um, there were seven U.S. men that broke 210 on the day. Uh, one of the deepest fields that we've seen. Marty Hare, the the winner, ended up running 208.59, which was the number seven fastest U.S. mark of all time, or never number seven U.S. men on a legal course of all time. Noah being the the ninth fastest. Um, Kind of how I want to start this is is going back through the start of this year, talking about coming out of missing Olympic trials for you, Noah, and then talking about the pandemic stuff uh, before we kind of dive into to how the race unfolded. Um, so last fall was on paper a big breakthrough for you, running 2.11.42. At the time, it was like a four-minute PR, but you and I – both would shrug off the 216 as something that we knew wasn't what we were targeting on the day. And the 211, I think it was a good, good step for you, even though we knew that you could go faster. And 
one of the things that I was thinking about this past week following the performance was how, when you first moved out, one of the things that I had said was you could be a sub 210 guy. Well, now you're a sub 210 guy. So now we have to kind of decide what that next milestone was. Um, but kind of talk about running that 211 last year at Chicago and the first comment you said to me when, when I saw you in the finishing shoot was it was a good day, but we have work to do. Well, you did some work this past year and made it a, a pretty memorable day. So. <clears throat> yeah, I've kind of said this before, but I felt like after I ran the 211 in Chicago, I had kind of, you know, they let me into the arena of my marathon potential, but I was still kind of, you know, a ways off the field. And when I said that, I meant like, I think I finally put one together. I finally had a good experience in the marathon, but I could tell that I left a lot of time out on the course and that my, you know, the higher end of my potential, I could chop off at least enough time to be running up there with like Jake Riley and uh, Joe Locke guys who ran 210 that day. Like I thought that could have been me on a good day. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I was happy with it. I it was a positive experience. I felt like I raced the whole way and then, you know, blow up at the end, which I had in my previous marathons. And so I, I definitely like felt a sense of optimism coming off of that race, but not necessarily a, a sense of like, triumph where I had like fulfilled my potential kind of the way I feel after this one, I guess. Yeah. Do you remember what place you were American at Chicago? I was eighth American. And here being second, I'm sure factors into a lot of that too, where you're eighth American, you're running a big time of 211, which four years before that would have been one of the top five guys in the country. But now seven guys beating you on that day, even like if you were 211 finishing second American on that day, it may have felt different than being the eighth American. Yeah, it was a little, it was a little bittersweet to have that personal best, but then, you know, realize that I had let the group go at 10 K or at, at 20 miles and I had settled into a rhythm and I never really raced it. I was really just holding on and I finished as eighth American. Um, when I ran 216 in Chicago in 2017, I, I was also the eighth American running 216 that day. So it gives you an idea of, of depth, I think. But yeah, it was it was nice to uh, to get one on the board, um, but it was frustrating to be beaten by so many guys that I think I can take on the right day. Yeah, and coming off of that, we were we – were knowing it was going to be a tight turnaround going into the Olympic trials, but not anticipating your legs, not responding as well as we had hoped after Chicago had a little bit of it band issue, a little bit of a patellar retinacular strain, partial tear. It took a while for that to, to really calm down. And you really didn't start running normal till what about mid January with just not that much time before trials to even give it a go. Yeah, something like that. Spent a lot of time in doctor's offices and getting weird injections and a bunch of crazy shit and none of it helped. And I was in a lot of pain for a long time. <laughs> and then I uh, finally made the decision to uh, pull the plug on the trials because I wasn't going to have enough time and refocus. Um, and then I got some good training in and then I got hurt again in March. So yeah. it was a rough beginning to the year. Yeah, and the, the injury in March, we... I mean, we got a little overzealous as we were trying to gear up for potentially New York half, which ended up getting canceled and your injury happened the week leading into the New York half. So 
we were just trying to push the envelope, obviously, to get you ready for something as an early, early year redemption for missing the trials. I found out the race was canceled um, at my appointment to get my MRI. <laughs> so that that was kind of like twenty, the beginning of twenty twenty for me in in one image. <laughs> yeah, if we could, if we could say that that was any premonition of what the rest of the year was going to look like, like that was pretty sick humor at that point. Yeah. What when you saw a lot of those guys racing at trials? I know it was hard for you to be there because you were there watching Emma, watching watching the other athletes on the team. Was it motivating to see guys like Jake Riley make an Olympic team, other guys finishing top ten that you know that you can contend with, um, or was it still at that at that point a little bit disappointed to not be in the race? I definitely wouldn't describe it as motivating um, because in my head, I already had the chance. And so I didn't need those guys to run well to prove that I had a chance that day. I thought on my best day, I mean, I've, I've been Abdi, I've taken Abdi the line before. Like what, you know, there was no reason that on my best day, I couldn't have been up there. You know what I mean? It would have taken a great day, but so it was, it was only disappointing. It was a heartbreaking experience. There were very few positives that I brought out of that um, at least until later this year when, you know, looking back on it, I felt like all those guys had their shot already this year and I hadn't had my shot yet. And so I almost looked at the marathon project as kind of my Olympic trials. Um, granted the Olympians weren't there, but it was still a really good field. And uh, that was my shot at redemption. Do you think seeing the results now and obviously being a part of that experience this last weekend, there's guys sitting at home that kind of look at the marathon project that same way, like whether cause of injury or fitness a little bit disappointing, like, man, that may have been my shot to run really fast. Yeah. I think there's definitely going to be, you know, that fear of missing out when you're sitting at home and I've had that experience many times. I've just been very lucky that I've been now a part of the two deepest fields in American marathoning history. And um, adding to it too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And so that's been, that's been cool, but I've also been on the other side in other races like Houston half this January where everybody broke 62 and you're kind of sitting at home, like, man, did I just miss an opportunity? Um, but you know, I've been doing this a long time and I think everyone has their days. And so one of my, one of my favorite, you know, little sayings is that I'll be ready when my train comes in because eventually your train's going to get there and mine just didn't get here until December. Yeah. And Frank, you were part of that deep Houston field that Noah was alluding to, and you ran 61, eight, uh, 61, 48 gun time, but 61 or 61, 48, uh, chip time, but 61, 50 gun time. That time is what helped get Noah sponsorship two, three years before that. But the landscape has changed both with, well, look, to be fair, his gun time was slower. Right. Right. But, but and, what I'm saying, gun and gun time is official time. And so <laughs> yeah. Frank's PR is, is 6150. So Just saying. Yeah. So you're two <laughs> two seconds slower on gun time than Noah at this point in your career. And two long seconds. The two long seconds. And well, two, three years before that, that was one of the things that helped kind of catapult him into what ended up being a sponsorship. The depth of the US men's field has changed and obviously footwear being a part of that and just the talent level of some of the guys coming out of college 
both how did it feel running that on the day, which was kind of a surprise to me to a certain extent. I felt like a total idiot saying go run sub 63 and you run 61, 48 gun time or chip time. Um, but also did that change your expectations of what you were looking for the rest of the year pre pandemic when everything changed? It was really awesome. I think going into it, my self goal was to not walk. And when I finished the race, I didn't walk and I knew at the time would come if I didn't, if I did that and to provide context that my previous races, I had walked and slowed down after being with the leader. So I knew that, um, I was always in a position to like compete with everyone up there, but I just hadn't happened yet. Um, and what I like saying is like my train hadn't arrived yet. And then it suddenly it did the train, the met metaphor I often use. Um, and, uh, I mean, looking at it now in terms of like previous years, I would have, maybe that would have given me a bigger opportunity in terms of, um, sponsorship or other race entries and stuff. Um, I think it's, I still look at it similarly where like my train maybe hasn't arrived yet, but I am, as long as I keep waiting by the platform, uh, it'll get, it'll get there. We are going to ride this metaphor <laughs> for hours. Yeah. This is, this, I love this. <laughs> well, and on that same day, uh, Alex, who was on our team at the time, and then Willie also ran pretty fast, breaking 62. So at the time, we had four guys that were capable of running really fast for the half. Obviously, your focus that spring was still going to be 10K. No, we were kind of shooting for potentially a fall marathon this next year, trying to qualify for the trials, being something on the radar as well in the 10K. But um, to have the collective nature of guys that are of similar ability has got to be a motivating piece, obviously, with training. But now so even more with Noah running 209 and Frank running 2744, you two guys in particular – on the next potential marathon block would kind of align with a lot of that longer stuff, which has got to, got to be both exciting and a little bit relieving to know that you'll have help with some of those types of sessions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the whole, with the half, um, the three of us right there, I mean, Willie ran two seconds faster than Noah ever has in his whole life. So that was just like, <laughs> we got someone that's way better than Noah by at least two seconds. And like, we're all competing, we're all training together. And like, it was just like a good affirmation of what we're doing is working and um, that we can just continue to build on it as a team. And like uh, the results have kind of spoken for themselves. And now Noah and I are in a pretty awesome position where um, I'm hoping he continues to want to train with me. I really want to keep training with him. Um, and it's just, it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited for Frank's eventual move to the marathon. I, I'm not, you know, for me, just so much of it is being able to start workouts with people. That's all I really need. And while I, I'm not confident that I'll ever see Frank after four or five miles in a workout, um, you know, just knowing that he'll be there is comforting to me. <laughs> when when you guys, before we start talking about the marathon project. Talking trash. I'm just talking trash. Out <laughs> yeah. <here. laughs> Well, on that note, so like, obviously I said, it does help having similar abilities. Is it also something that you look forward to, okay, potentially being in the same marathon race together, or do you, in the next one, would you still, even though you might be doing a, a significant amount of the training together, 
still want your own individual days in separate separate races um that that doesn't that doesn't really mean anything to me having separate days um i think if i think it's really cool to train for the same race together i've had that experience with you know willie and ryan this go around and uh you know specifically to the marathon project there were definitely moments where you know i was tucked in behind frank and maybe i was feeling a wave of anxiety and it was just like oh okay like just pretend this is practice you know and i'm running behind frank at practice and that would calm me down and so i think that's actually a huge asset to have on race day and so i don't see there's see why there'd be any reason for us to dodge each other yeah i i want to echo what noah said definitely just i think our mutual awareness of each other's presence kind of helped a lot in both i mean in, in training and both in the marathon project too um i'll say that what i did not expect to happen was for noah to pass me at any point like because he never does that in practice so when he did i it kind of it really shocked me and <laughs> <laughs> um okay well switching gears coming out of the pandemic like obviously we're still in the pandemic, but for you guys coming out of the the quarantine back in the spring, no, you were coming off injuries. So you kind of had a slower start to 2020 with hard training. You really didn't start doing workouts until light workouts, mid July, and then actual workouts come August. And Frank, you kind of had a huge upswing in performance uh, around June, July with some of those early races and kind of built on that um, through the fall. Kind of talk about that. The Frank, you used it as a as a piece to kind of gain traction. Noah, it seemed like you used it as a piece to kind of refocus, recenter yourself, allow yourself the 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 freedom to to be able to take it a little bit slower than normally you might when there are races on the calendar coming up. Yeah. Um yeah, I definitely started really slow when I when I did start building back up again. The first week I went out and ran one mile, and then the next day I ran a mile and a half, and then two miles. And so it took me 10 days or so to even run half an hour. And um, and I kind of embraced that process for sure. I was riding my bike a lot, um, which I really got to enjoy doing and doing some of the climbs around Boulder on the bike. And you know, just progress my mileage in a very logical way. I would, I would do workouts only if I felt like doing it after I started running. And most of those were just like sight fart licks. Like I would pick something in the distance and I would just run to it. And then I would jog however long I wanted. And then I'd pick something else to run to. Like that's how unstructured it was. Um, probably even more unstructured than you liked. Um, but that's just kind of like what I needed to do is just make, things up on the fly and then gradually I just found myself actually putting up pretty decent mileage and and so before we even started the marathon like specific block I was already running 90 miles a week and so looking back on it I had a really good six months uh leading up to that marathon and that uh that was huge for me yeah I mean one thing that kind of piggyback off of something you just touched on is I mean, you and I have been working together now for about five years. And one of the things I've learned over the years, not just with you, but with a lot of the athletes is uh, know, know when to pick my battles. And so if there's certain things where it's like understanding, okay, this, you doing an unstructured fart leg versus me putting on there like 10 by one minute, like 
at the end of the day, the, the, the point of it is still the same. It's just to get your legs turning over a little bit. And you've really become in tune with how your body's feeling on certain days. And half the, I mean, there's been a handful of workouts, even this, this fall where there is specific paces, specific paces written and you'll turn to me and go like what was that split and I was like do you have a watch I no I'm not wearing a watch and it's like you you've learned to trust kind of what your perception of effort has been and I think that's something that develops with athletes over time Frank I feel like you have a pretty good handle on it you still like having the watch there and you still do everything I say but as an athlete grows within the system I feel like the freedom becomes a little bit more there, there becomes a little bit more of a leash because it becomes much more of a collaborative effort than kind of a dictatorship as coach athlete. Personally, I freedom kind of scares me and I really like you telling me what to do. Cause I like, I don't know. I think it, it gives me a lot more confidence. If you that may change though. If you tell me to do something, whether what, or compared to if I think I can do it. And for me, I'm, I, in those early months, I just like, I was at a pretty low point and just like enjoying running as well. It wasn't just physical, like building my body back from practically zero. It was just like, I didn't like running. I had just had my heart broken in February and then my heart broken again in March with no end to the heartbreak in sight. And so <laughs> it was just like, you know, it was a contract year for me. It is a contract year for me. And so I was really just looking at my recent disappointments and not knowing what it would pick up. And so it was very much just like I, it had to be a natural process for me to ease back into things. And a lot of that, like for me as an athlete is just what I feel like doing on any certain day. And I can't predict it. I just do it. And then there's going to be a time where really structured training comes into play. And I felt like, over the last six months that really played out beautifully transitioning from doing what I wanted to do to doing what I had to do, but still enjoying it. Um, so I'm grateful that happened. Yeah. And you, I mean, you brought up it being a contract year for you, obviously missing the trials was kind of a heartbreak when it came to that, which had to have also been a motivating piece to, to run well at the marathon project, knowing that like you were going to be going through some of those renegotiations this year being an anomaly where there's, there just hasn't been many competitions for you to have the opportunity to test yourself earlier than the marathon project on a normal year. How much does contracts factor into decisions of races versus just being a side piece that you think about in the back of your head? I mean, I don't really know. This is my first renewal year. And so this is the first year where that pressure was there. I, I also felt like this before I signed my contract where I just, I felt like every chance I got, it was either, it was like, there was no failure because I had to, I had to do it to build my resume. And, and so I went into every race with extremely high stakes. And then once I did achieve that goal of signing a contract that wore off and that was probably not a good thing. And so anyway, this year, especially after I missed the Michigan half um, that Frank competed in a couple months ago because of a po positive COVID test, um, it really did come down to just one singular opportunity for me. And that was the marathon project. And well, those can, those are, can definitely be um, unnerving experiences to realize how much rides on one single race. Um, looking back on my career, I've almost always delivered on those days. Um, 
And so there is something exciting about knowing that you have it in you to rise to that occasion. And it was definitely a motivating factor. Yeah, I think early on in your your sponsorship tenure with Saucony, I think that was something that kind of impeded your performance a little bit was just coming to terms now of, okay, contract was a goal. Now it's the expectation that comes along with that contract. You've talked about this in the past, both when we've sat down and with other podcasts where you you don't want to feel like that company made, made a mistake by choosing you as a, as a sponsored athlete. And so the last year and a half going even before Chicago to some of those late summer road races that you, you did, you could see yourself running a little bit more free where those expectations, you had learned how to manage those a little bit better. And the performances started returning to what we had seen pre-sponsorship. Yeah, I think I realized that other people's expectations are not a very good motivator for me. It, I approached those negatively um, and they really fucked with my head. And so I think I realized that I really need to be motivated because to do things that I want to do, not to do things that I thought my sponsors or whoever were expecting me to do. And that process took longer than maybe I would like, um, but it happened. And I feel like I'm kind of back where I started now. <laughs> so with, with Frank being in a similar position to where you were, where those sponsorship talks are becoming a little bit more um, apparent or regular that he's kind of on the verge of seeing some of the same stuff that you did. What advice would you give somebody like him or other runners in the same position that are wanting to get sponsored, but then after they do learning how to, to perform under those expectations? Well, I think Frank has his head screwed on maybe a little straighter than I did when I was going through that. That's just my imp general impression of Frank. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I really have advice that I can dish out beforehand. It's more just like handling day-to-day -day stuff. But I think Frank does this because he really truly loves to run and loves to race and, um, you know, fuck sponsors. It's, it's nice to have them. Um, and they're awesome to work with, but we're really only doing this because we want to see lower numbers next to our names. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and I think Frank is smart enough to get that and there might be low points, but we can, we can handle that off air if he, if he ever yeah. wants to talk about it, but, um, yeah, yeah I and, love and, yeah. I love one of the quotes Willie had brought up in the past where he said, at the end of my career, I won't remember how much money I made, but I'll remember how fast I ran. And I think as long as that becomes like a center point, all the other stuff kind of falls in line with that. Yeah, for sure. And you also have to realize that, you know, nobody cares. And even after you're assigned to a contract, like they still don't really care about your day to day and about every single race you do. It's like, yeah, nobody cares, which is, which is a very freeing um, thought once you really understand it. And I think, uh, yeah, that's probably what I would tell Frank. Like, no one really cares except for you, dude. It's like, if you have a bad race, it's tough, but your sponsor's not going to cut you because of one bad race. Like, you make it work. Now, two bad races. Now we're talking. Two bad races, you're out. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I... Um... I really appreciate how you how tight you think my head is screwed on. Um, as Michael Scott once said, I really, I'm really impressed with the potential you see in me.
Yeah. Now going into the buildup for the marathon project, um, Frank, we really hadn't talked about you pacing until late October. Um, the idea started getting floated. I believe it was early August. Wasn't it Noah about the potentially of them, them hosting something? Yeah, that sounds about right. And it was Ben Rosario, Josh Cox, who, who's also your agent being the spearheads to that. Um, and as soon as they decided that it was going to happen, we knew you, Aaliyah, other athletes in our group definitely wanted to be a part of it. Um, were you ever skeptical that it would ever get brought, like actually come to fruition just based on the context of the year and then the undertaking to host a marathon in the first place? Oh, for sure. Um, and not because I doubted Rosario or, uh, or Josh at all. Like I was mm-hmm. very confident in their ability to pull it off, but I mean, it just, with the way COVID was trending, it just, you never know. It gets to the point where it just has to be canceled. And, and that was totally out of the organizer's control. And so, you know, seeing it, so many opportunities come and go that year, I think it would have been foolish to think that anything was a, was a guarantee. Yeah. And I think it, it was, we had the benefit that we knew that the idea was being floated for December, but we still weren't sure if it was going to happen. But once it became official, then we could actually start planning for the marathon we had, I think it was 12 weeks or 13 weeks to kind of build up to it, which in normal context might be a short buildup for you. You're somebody that does get in shape relatively quickly. Um, do you feel like that shorter buildup was a benefit to you? Do you feel like it had zero impact? Did it help you not focus on it too far out in advance? Um, I mean, I don't really look at it as a short buildup because I was already running 90 mile weeks um, when we found out. And so when the official like 12 week buildup started, I guess it didn't really feel any different to me. And so I really look at it as more of a six month deal. Uh, But um, I mean, I was thinking about the race all the time because it was the only race. and, (laughs) and, uh, And so but I handled that okay. Yeah. And you normally like to have a tune-up race in there. You just didn't have that this time around. So at what point during that buildup, did you start having the confidence that you knew you could go out with that 209 group, which is what we had been targeting the whole time, just because of what you had previously done and what we had, we had seen as that next step. Well, I mean, I always had confidence that I could go out with the 209 group. I just didn't necessarily have the confidence that I would be able to stick with them for very long, but (laughs) I mean, like, because I hadn't raced in 14 months. And so, you know, 64, 30 through halfway is aggressive running. And I don't know, I had really no indicators to, to say that I, 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 I had any kind of like race fitness, but training had been going well. Um, I had done some things in training that I thought indicated that I was in pretty good shape. And at the end of the day, it was just like, there was no reason for me to do anything else than, then go with the 209 group. And so I felt fit and I was just like, you know, maybe I get out there and we go through halfway in 6430. And I realized that just that top end is not there and I blow up and I go home and I'm devastated. But like, that was really my only chance. You know, I stood to gain nothing by running to 1130 again. Yeah. I think one, for me, my perspective was seeing uh, a flip switch, not only like confidence, but belief, like, was that longer marathon pace workout you and Frank did together where it was, uh, I I believe it was 10 miles at marathon pace and then three miles cutting down. So it was 13 miles sustained. 
within your with your first 10 miles were at 455 and then you were able to close pretty hard um you had asked me i think it was two weeks before that about whether we were going to do anything sustained at marathon pace and up until that point i wasn't planning on having anything like that in there um partially because we had done some of that stuff in previous marathon buildups and it just not not working out great um so when you suggested it, i was like well we can definitely do one and um it might be the only one and then when you crushed it it was almost like all right well now let's let's just get to the race healthy because we know it's there yeah i mean it was 10 mile tempo and four by mile four by mile three, yeah just yeah. so we're clear yeah. <laughs> um i couldn't believe but, you did that thanks Frank. uh <laughs> But, you know, traditionally in our training, we, we do a lot of tempos um, around in the 450s, like every weekend, practically, I would do a tempo like that. And in this buildup, it changed to more being like a little slower than that, more like running 510s instead of 455s, and, um, which was fine. And I think looking back on it, I actually felt better day to day because we weren't as aggressive on the tempos. But yeah, and... I, and- so, and just to, to clarify too, like that was something that we had started switching even before Chicago, just not to the same extent that we had done this time. And so we started seeing some of that success with what you guys did at Chicago. And so kind of building off that and not switching back to what some of our older, older stuff would have been with some of the half and 10 K training. Yeah. And so I was just looking at my training line and be like, man, like I'm doing some good stuff, but I haven't run more than two or three continuous miles at goal marathon pace, like at all, all year. And so, you know, you can be confident in your training, but I think at some point you just need to look down and see splits that say, Hey, you are exactly in this shape. Um, And so being able to run, 455 for 10 miles at altitude i'm basically like okay if i can do that at altitude then i can get i can get to 15 at sea level and if i can get to 15 at sea level like on race day like anything's possible and that was enough for me to just like just know that i could run that pace um you know for 10 at altitude i was just like okay cool it's there um and that was a cool day too because like Frank paced the first six miles of that. And so, and he took it out like extremely hard. I don't think he realized how, how hard he took it out, but it was like within the first half mile of that workout, like I had zero confidence that I was going to finish it, you know? And so it was, it and when was you nice. heard he was pacing, it was even less confident in his pacing. No, I, I knew he'd get it right on the day, but he was feeling a little antsy on, on this particular workout. But no, it was definitely one of those workouts I looked back, you know, when I was skimming my log before the race and being like, okay, like, you know, I, I, I have this objectively in my body to go out the way I want tomorrow because I did this already. And so that was big. Yeah, Frank, that I think was your longest longest run at that pace prior to going in and pacing at that effort when you you and i first talked to ben rosario about you pacing out at the michigan half um were you were you nervous at all about whether you could hold 455 for 18 miles like you're a relatively i say relatively lower volume like noah you were only a 70 mile a week guy when you first moved out 
but like Frank's now running 80 to 85. And that part of that is like that progression up to eventually him being a marathoner. Um, but being 80 to 85, like 18 miles at 455 is still a pretty daunting task. I didn't really have a doubt about being able to do that because I like was more focused on my track goals and I knew if I could run close to 2730 that I that shouldn't be a problem so like I don't know pacing was never really on the forefront of my mind just because I had like things are more important to me at the time than that but like as soon as the my like 10k season was over I had two weeks to the marathon project I really dialed in and I like I probably the first few days I was scared that after the race that I was scared I wasn't going to be able to do it but once just with how sore you were yeah once I'd recovered um a few days out I was like oh maybe I can finish it yeah yeah Ben Rosario had texted me I think it was midweek to just make sure that you were still ready to go because Tyler Day had hurt his Achilles at that 10k and I was like, yep, he's ready to go. He's excited. He's, he's starting, starting to like, I think the day before you had done your 20 mile long run. And, uh, he was like, oh man, that's music to my ears because at the time before they got Mason Furlick, like you were the only pacer. Um, so just knowing that there was a guy that was capable of running that fast in there, I'm sure was giving him confidence just to make sure that the group at least got out fast enough um that 20 mile long run at the time was your fastest long run and this was something that we just did is okay let you practice some fueling but it's also when you and I toyed with the idea of you actually finishing the marathon as opposed to just being a pacer and part of that was knowing that it was going to be fast race good field of guys perfect conditions and not knowing what is going to happen this next year with marathoning why lose a day if you're having a good one? Um, at what point during the run did you think, okay, I'm not going to be able to finish or how seriously were you also toying with the idea of potentially finishing? During the race, you mean? Yeah. Like I'm sure going into it, you were like, look, my plan is to finish if I'm feeling okay. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely my plan. I, in my, in my mind, I was kind of like, we'll check how we're doing at 18, how we're feeling and reevaluate to there if we should keep going and still feeling good. So I made it to 20, was thinking like, oh, I'm still feeling good. I think I could win this thing. And then a few seconds later, the whole group passed me and Noah kind of <laughs> came by really close to me. I was like, oh, maybe not. And I like tried hanging on to the group. And I don't know if it was just kind of the feeling of being passed after leading a race for 20 miles that got to me or if like I was just kind of had reached my limit but um I stayed in for a couple more miles and I uh just kind of hang on and the the miles were no longer 455 and at mile 22 the wall got a lot steeper and my vision started narrowing kind of blurring and I decided this isn't worth it <laughs> Yeah, I think you passed me at 35k. You were still on 20940 pace, but you were about 10 seconds off of them at that point. And I was running backwards on the side of the course going, "How are we feeling?" and you're like, "Uh." Eh. I'm like, "Well, be careful." And then I think it was like a mile later you ended up dropping out. Yeah, yeah, it was I dropped out and had a nice pleasant uh walk back to the starting line. Actually, I walked to the uh back to the bottle station to pick up my last bottle because I could 
I was really feeling a Coke at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think you dropped out at the furthest point on the course. Yep. Did you really go back and get your last bottle? Or are you yeah. joking? I mean, I knew I still had a while before everyone finished. I was like, might as well enjoy this walk. <laughs> And I was cheering on a, cheering on the runners come in from both sides of the road. So you earned that Coke, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's I want to look at these splits real quick because you guys started out a little bit slow. Your first 5K, you were averaging 459. And Noah, you said somebody in the group was like, let's pick it up. We're too slow. And you were like, dude, calm down. Yeah, I mean, we went through the first mile and I don't know, it was over five minutes, but I could tell that most pretty much all of that time we lost in the first 800. Like they were, they definitely took it out a little conservatively, which was fine. But I was running with Jared uh, next to Jared right behind him and we came through in 5 0 something. And, you know, it's slower than where we wanted to be, obviously, but the marathon is so long. And when somebody yelled, pick it up, I, I immediately immediately was just like, no, like don't overcorrect. Like you guys are doing fine because it felt like we were pretty much back on pace, you know, by the mile, like we were getting close. And so, yeah, I don't know anybody who needs to yell, pick it up at mile one. Like if it, like if 501 or whatever is too slow for you, like you better have a pretty good last 10K, you know, and uh, I'm pretty sure I beat that person. So I, I don't think it was really too slow. And they did a great job, you know, by – by three or four miles, we were, we were right on and there was never any question from there. It was smooth sailing. Yeah. And Frank, one of the things I had harped to you the day before when we were doing some of the mobility work was just like, look, like in those first 15 to 16 miles, especially for you, no stupid surges because you don't want to have those energy systems switch too early and if you're, if you're finding your, I'd rather you be a little bit slow, but if you're finding yourself a little bit slow early, gradually just start ramping it up. None of the stupid surges, which are going to impact those other guys later on in that race. And so you did a great job of that. You guys were 459 average first 5k, 457 next 5k, but then you were 455, 455, 455, 455, 455, all the way down through 30k before your pacing jobs were finished and i think you guys came through what was it 64 26 or 64 29 with 64 30 being the goal like that's almost as perfectly as you can pace a marathon with it not starting out way too fast and slowing down you guys started out slightly slow and just started ramping it up um was that were you and mason communicating at that point did you guys flip off who was in charge of dictating the early miles um, the only communication Mason really had, and I really had was communicating whether he wanted some of my bottle at the bottle stations, but did uh, he not, he didn't have any, no, I mean, he was only planning on going for the half marathon. So he mm -hmm. didn't really need to prepare anything, but he ended up staying in a few, a couple miles after that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was cool to have company and it was just nice to have someone to kind of key off of. We were both kind of just not really saying we were like taking over, but every now and then we, one of us would be leading and then we'd kind of switch off. Did you guys, either one of you find the, like it's rare to have the density of guys running that fast in a marathon together. Did you find the bottle stations difficult at all? 
Um, for us, it was really easy just because uh, we were out of the the pacer table was pretty far ahead of everyone else's table. So like we didn't really have to maneuver through or like get out of anyone's way or like worry about bothering anybody. But um, I was terrified that I was going to knock someone's bottle off the table because I've never really picked up, picked up a bottle off of a surface instead of your hand before. So I had like, uh, my friends who watched the video or thought I was going to fall every time I picked up the bottle because I like did a two hand like <laughs> grasp really quickly and like kept running <laughs> with it. So that was scary, but I, I was able to grab them every time without, I don't think any disturbances from behind me, but I, I don't know, Noah's probably more aware of any trouble I might've caused behind me. Um, yeah, I was communicating quite a bit um, just with the guys around, like when we would come into the table, it's on the first couple laps, I'd ask what table they were. Um, so I knew whether I should give them a lane inside or if I should speed ahead and so i think that's pretty natural in marathons when you approach bottle stations you use a lot of hand signals to point your intention to cut over or you just you know you know like cam was table number five or whatever and he grabbed his bottle and i was like i was like okay move you know and he and he accelerated out of my way and so just like simple commands like that go a long way to keep people from piling up i know you were you were uh, a pretty prominent figure at the front of that group for almost the entire race. Even when Frank dropped out, you took the lead for a little bit. When Marty surged, you tried to cover the surge. Um, was that an intention going in, like try to establish yourself as one of the, the, the one trying to dictate how the race unfolded? Uh, that's not really the words I would have, I would use. I just feel I feel more comfortable running at the front of packs. I think it's easier to relax and run my own rhythm when I'm not keying off people as they accelerate or decelerate around me with the, the turnarounds. It was easier to kind of be on my own and not negotiating a pack. Um, and I feel like I am, you know, a rhythm runner. Like I, I'm good at settling into a pace and I gain confidence from knowing that I am, you know, inflicting a certain amount of pain on those behind me, whether, you know, I can turn the screw a little bit whenever I want and I'm not reacting, I'm perpetrating. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I, all my best races have been like that. When I, when I am in that position, it feels natural to me and it gives me confidence to run that road that way. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I feel like your best races have come when, um, you have the ability to be a little bit more of an aggressor, especially in those later stages when you still find yourself. Like I knew at, at mile 15, 16, when you were in that group, you looked pretty controlled and comf comfortable at the, the front end of that group, that it was going to be a fast day for you. Um, as we said the day before, like I was confident in everybody's fitness, but there's so many things that can impact somebody's ability to see the follow through in that long of a race. Um, so when you were at 15, 16 and looked pretty smooth, I knew it was going to be a pretty special day. And I think part of that comes with you're surrounded by guys that, you know, on your, your best day, you can also be, and they're also like, I mean, you're 10 miles from the finish and you're in a potential to potentially win it, which is, was one of the goals to start. 
Um, so that, that late, I, I, it's almost like your confidence starts to grow when you're still there in those deeper stages. Yeah. I mean, in my own head, I'm really just telling myself not to fuck up a good opportunity that I've established. Um, and so it's not even like a confidence thing thing. I just kind of grow increasingly more afraid that I'm somehow going to let this good day that I've built slip away. And so, yeah. And so I think that's why I, I try to be aggressive in races, just not to give myself an out. And, you know, as we got to 15, 18, 20, I realized what was happening. And I realized that if I just kept my foot on the gas at all, I was going to have a really good day. And I'm not, you know, I'm not totally convinced that's the best strategy for me to win races right now, but it is the best strategy for me to get the most out of myself. Um, and so I'm, I think I did that. Yeah. And I think it was a, a flip from what we also saw at Chicago where, we both knew you needed a time to kind of show that you, your potential was, was there. And like, we both would agree that your last 10 K some of that was just about maintaining the effort to get that time on paper and not get too aggressive late for the sake of preventing a blow up. It was almost like, well, okay, now you have nothing to lose. You have the two eleven, like, like you said, keep the foot on the gas as long as you can, because you don't want one of those days to slip away again. Yeah. Chicago definitely was the Chicago result definitely was a safety net in that way. Um, and yeah, I do. I had a very vivid memory from that race in Chicago when the move came a little bit after 20 and it, everyone had to make a decision very quickly if they were going to go race it out you know, and run 210, or if they were going to lock it in and get to the finish in a very respectable 211, you know, and I made the decision to run a respectable 211 and not a decision to go try to win the pack, right? I made, I made the decision to lose <laughs> in yeah. Chicago. And, um, and so I knew in my next marathon, that moment was going to happen again, because it always does. And this time I was going to make the other decision and uh marty just made that decision more emphatically than i did <laughs> yeah i i mean i was that last mile i i still thought you had the potential to catch him at that final turn where you were 500 500 meters out um 10 seconds is a lot to make up in the final mile of a marathon um but you were still within striking distance and when you see it you're not it doesn't look like 10 seconds like it looks much closer than what it was at what point did you think, okay, I can still catch him versus there's too much distance? Um, I don't know exactly. I actually, re I, I watched the race um, a couple of days ago with Emma and I realized I really don't remember much of the last half hour. Um, I was just really deep at that point. Um, but in that last two miles or so, I do remember looking up sometimes and realizing that I was a little closer than I had been before. Um, but the miles were dragging on a really long time at that point and I was starting to get nauseous. And so I felt like I was doing everything I could to catch him and there'd be glimmers of hope, but you know, I knew I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to get there um, with probably 2k to go, but I was still chasing, you know, because yeah. I knew that I, I knew that I had something special going on. And so I was running for that. 
And um, I would have loved to have caught Marty, but honestly, you know, the guy's a sub four miler. I would have pulled yeah. up on his shoulder at 200 to go and he still would have blasted me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was something to chase. Yeah. And then you had the memorable moment at the finish line where it's gone viral at this point where you've thrown up all over the place. And I didn't know you could fit that much in your stomach that late into a race with how much you actually threw up. And you continued to do that throughout the the day just being nauseous i saw a number of people do the same thing though like you weren't the only one that kind of puked at the finish line um i saw even saw emma bates who who ran 225 i think it was right around 30k or 35k she literally pulled over to the side of the course and puked five times within about 100 meters and then kept going and so do you do you feel like some of that obviously nutrition is going to play a role in that and you've thrown up after your last two marathons but it's also your new territory running as fast as you had for that long um and we we say that it was ideal weather but it was still you guys were fully exposed how much do you think that is you just being full not absorbing fluid do you think it was the wrong type of fluid for you at certain points in that race or a combination of that combined with the pace of you just not being able to take anything else while your body's starting to shut down. Um, I mean, your point is kind of proven by the fact that I've thrown up after every marathon that I've mm-hmm. done. And so I, I think the writing is on the wall here that whatever I'm putting in my bottles is, is probably not the best for me because I'm not absorbing it. I'm just carrying that fluid with fluid, me yeah. the whole way. And so I don't, totally know it's like is my body just not going to digest anything at all because that's the way it reacts to running that pace for so long or am I drinking the wrong thing um I don't know I was just really full and then I think as the uh effort increases especially over that last mile or two where you're very much redlining breathing harder than you have all day um yeah it just sets it off for me yeah a lot of that I was talking I think it was with you Frank or maybe it was Ryan about about that, the, the throwing up piece. And some of that is just, um, uh, like hydrogen ions kind of building where your body's going a little bit more acidic and that's going to contribute to a little bit more of the, the nausea, um, which can also induce some of the vomiting. Um, and so that's, it, it, we've tried to play around with your percentage of carbohydrates, even making these ones a little bit more watered down, knowing, okay, you'd need to absorb some more of that fluid. And so the carbohydrate percentage was even lower than what you've been accustomed to, but it's still having a similar effect. And so, um, yeah, we'll have to kind of play around with that going into your next marathon, knowing that this was a a different type of circumstance than what you might experience in some of those other ones, but the pace hopefully isn't. And so if it's a pace, it's, if it's a pace thing, um, we need to figure out ways for your body to efficiently absorb some of that stuff. I mean, if anything, it's kind of comforting knowing that I can almost break 209 and not absorb anything. Yeah. Um, and so it, it kind of, you look at it as one of those, you know, 1% items or 1% mm-hmm. gains where it's like, if I, if I do figure that out and I am able to absorb nutrition, like maybe I cover Marty's move better, mm-hmm. who knows it's hindsight, but it is one thing to work on. Yeah. I mean, Benji Durden was saying when they ran their two Oh nines back in the late seventies, early eighties, he just took in water. It wasn't until like Frank shorter started putting Coke in bottles that they started doing that. Um, 
but we, we die like we focus so much on the nutrition piece of marathons, but how much of that is also a combination of the nutrition with what you're doing in training that helps your body kind of need that stuff later on too. Um, one of those other 1% items is the mileage piece, which you, you were the highest you've been consistently for a marathon block ever. Um, do you see us needing to increase that? Do you see us needing more consistency at what you've done? Um, I don't necessarily think like you were 110 at your highest point this time around or just over 110. Um, do you, I guess for your next block, do you see like building on that or just doing a little bit more of the like higher volume workouts within that same mileage frame? Well, I ran my first hundred mile week last year mm -hmm. in February of 2019. And so I was, you know, 28 years old when I ran my first hundred mile week. Um, and then I think that whole year I ran like six or eight hundred mile weeks yep. in that, in that year. And then this year, just in this buildup, I ran maybe eight to 10, something yeah. like that. And not to um, mention the number of 20 plus mile runs was more than what you had done in this block, even compared to Chicago. Yeah. And so I was running hundred mile weeks more consistently this year. Part of that is a byproduct of not racing and not going through that, you know, peak and recovery cycle for tune up races that definitely played a big part in it. But, um, I mean, I think my body felt the best it ever has in the midst of those hundred mile weeks. I felt like I was tolerating them really, really well. And I, I mean, I felt better at a hundred mile weeks than I felt when I was tapering, um, before race day. And so I, I think there's definitely room to, to pick that up to 115, maybe even 120, but I don't think, um, I mean, I've proven that I can be successful running a hundred and 105 too. And so it's, there's really no reason for me to go crazy with it, but just knowing how good I felt in this buildup, I think there's probably room to add another five to 10 to what I was doing. Yeah. And I mean, we've said it before where coach V Hill has said Meb operated best at one Oh five, whereas Dina operated best at one twenty-five, And some of that is finding the sweet spot for the individual. And like you identifying that you felt better at those longer volumes this time around, some of that is showing that your body's adapting well to it, but it'll also be interesting to see how does your body hold up once you're back into normal running after this, because we also want to make sure we're not repeating some of the same stuff that happened after Chicago. Um, yeah, and I think I mean, you you've taken this week pretty, pretty conservative to help your body recover a little bit more. Too. <laughs> yeah. I would say I've taken it, I've taken it pretty conservatively, but uh, yeah, I mean, mileage wise, there's no, I mean, there were guys in the field at the Marathon Project who had been running 130 miles a week consistently or more. And so it doesn't matter. You know, it's like you need to run enough, but to some extent that number depends on, on how you feel. And so somebody who's running 130 miles a week isn't just automatically going to be better than somebody who's running 100 mile weeks. It's, it's a piece of it. Yeah, and I think, Frank, for you not having the ability to – like you saying you felt a little bit like your body shutting down a little bit double vision at around 21, like that, some of that is just the strength at that point where your body's not familiar or accustomed to those longer distances. And it's a different feeling compared to what you're used to. 
So when your volume is coming up a little bit more, you're a little bit better prepared to handle the distance. Um, I think you'll see your body handle it differently, obviously, but talk about like the experience of pacing that and how that's going to obviously help you manage those types of feelings again, the next time you're, you're ready to run that distance. I mean, I think if it was a 20 mile race, I would have crushed everybody. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know, you're definitely right. My training hasn't, I mean, I wasn't getting ready to run a marathon. I'm just training for a 10 K. So it's just kind of like, and I can do that while not preparing for it to run a marathon. I, and I like, I think going into any future marathons after actually having trained for them, knowing that I can do this off of say a two week buildup and having my longest run ever be 20 miles. I think it'll give me a lot of confidence knowing that I already got the first 20 miles down and I did it off without any, any like particular individual preparation for it. So I'm just excited for whenever the opportunity presents itself in the next couple of years or so. So I don't know. I'm just super excited. The, I don't have any, I think if without having had this opportunity, it would be a lot scarier to go into a marathon and have it be my first one. Cause I can kind of see this as like a trial run that I don't think anyone <laughs> has ever had like a practice run at a marathon. Like I had, especially in that, in, in that format, I think, I mean, a lot has been made afterwards about the perfect nature of the course. And for somebody like yourself trying to get experience as to what that distance might entail, like that's almost the perfect audition. Um, can you guys talk about the course briefly? Like some people have been knocking the times because it was the perfect setup to me. It's like, you still have to run that speed for that amount of distance. And you could argue that is one of the fastest legitimate courses that there is on par with a Dubai and, uh, Rotterdam and a Berlin, um, running, running loops like that. Did that help you kind of tune in where you can kind of break the race up into those types of loops or was it a little bit daunting knowing, okay, I've got five more of these. Um, I wasn't counting loops and yeah, I mean, the course was perfect. The pavement was perfect. The weather was perfect. The pacing was perfect, but like, fuck it. I was there and I did it. So like, yeah. did, why, like, why do you want to put an asterisk next to it? Yeah. Um, you know, we all hope for those days. Obviously, I think I think in in a whole athletics career, you'll probably look back and notice that you really only had perfect conditions in a couple of races. Mm -hmm. And so that was another motivating factor to me to have a good day because I realized that those opportunities are so few and far between that you get the conditions to really put on paper where you actually are. Um, and, and so I, I definitely... I yeah, and sorry to interrupt. I don't know if you guys saw, like they had downpour rain like this a couple days ago. And so it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, some of it is, is luck on the day too. Like there could be wind, there could be a uh, heat wave. Like it, you can't predict that stuff. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And if, people feel the need to put an asterisk next to it because I had such good conditions, like whatever, you know, I'm number nine all time. So they can do that if they want to. Why, why do you think people tend to do that though? Like, 
why did why is there this need to put an asterisk next to a, a phenomenal performance especially when over the last couple of years the dialogue is well us men can't compete on the world stage at these marathons now we're seeing the depth improving we still have to do it in a lot of those major events but why is there this need to undercut the the density of performances I mean, I don't feel like there there is like a mainstream need to undercut these performances. I think we're really talking about the let's run message boards, which are really a cesspool of people mm-hmm. in general. And so they're going to do what they're going to do because they're horrible. And then, you know, like FlowTrack put out a video that was very like clickbaity. And so, I mean, in my experience interacting with people, no one has been like, well, it doesn't count because you have an asterisk. And so I'm not sure that narrative, because you have perfect, I'm not sure that narrative is mainstream. It exists, but you know, it's on the fringe. Um, No, your performance made you now the the fastest D3, former D3 runner of all time, beating Bill Rogers time of 209.29. You know, the crowd goes wild. D3 athlete. Yeah. You're D3. (laughs) Yeah, bro. Why am uh, I working out with you? Because you're mid-major, you're mid-major D1. The That's same right. That's yeah. <laughs> but how how does that feel being being mentioned in the same breath as somebody that's considered a legend in the sport? Uh, I mean, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's very the, cool. People keep asking me stuff like that, and I don't have a good answer because none of it really feels real. This isn't a position that I really ever expected to be in. Um, and so to be amongst those names, obviously the, you know, it was a different, different era, but you know, it's cool. It's really cool. What, so with that being different era, like when Bill Rogers ran his two nine twenty seven, he won Boston that year and he was a four time New York city marathon winner and four time Boston marathon winner. We may never see that again from a u.s side and we consider him one of the legends within the sport and obviously there's a ton of stuff that's changed since the time that he was racing comparative to now what what do you think it would take for somebody in today's time to be considered in that same tier breath of legend within the sport uh you'd have to be galen rupp but like a more likable version of galen rupp who (laughs) didn't have anything shady associated with him probably i mean you need to you need to win majors you need to be high profile you need to be in the packs with the east africans when it counts um i mean the depth is so incredible in the marathon right now that it's hard to imagine an american really forging a name and building a resume like those guys had but you never know do you, yeah, but then in recent times, we see somebody like Meb and Ryan Hall been able to establish themselves with some credibility on that level. And some of that is like what you said. I mean, placing consistently top three, top five at some of those world majors. Yeah, you need to win races. You need to have Olympic medals. And so we'll have people who, you know, achieve those feats, maybe win New York, maybe win Boston. But to imagine American winning Boston and New York four times feels like a stretch um, anymore. Yeah, I mean, pretty incredible feat for the time that he ran, let alone seems almost implausible now considering, like you said, the depth is, is so different even internationally that every year there could be another person winning Boston Marathon that has 
world-class remarkable performances under their belt. So, um, I mean, even somebody like Kipchoge that had the string that he did winning so many races is still not unbeatable on any given, any given marathon. So, um, yeah, but I think it's, it is, this race did highlight that U S running is heading in a good direction and potentially, um, gives a lot more people the confidence to know that they can run those types of times. I think one of the beautiful nature of this event was what we had said the day before the race, there's really, you guys have been given an opportunity where there's such low risk to take a swing at running one of those big times. And it now can help raise the bar for so many people that weren't there on the day that we're sitting at home to know that they have the potential to do that too. So the idea of going after a sub 210 doesn't carry the same shine as it may have a year and a half ago. Um, now it's trying to be in the 209s running sub 209s. Yeah, I mean, everybody in the top 20 of the Marathon Project looks at me and looks at Marty and they know that they can run with us on any given day. You know, and so they're not going to stop trying. And on you, you run that race a hundred times. You know, there's going to be a lot of guys running fast. You know, and so yeah, I think everyone in the top twenty now has the confidence that they can be a two hundred eight guy like Marty. And then you have guys who are sitting at home who know they compete with us. And then you have guys like Frank who haven't run raced one for real yet. Who when they debut, they're going to be right there too. And so the the depth um, will kind of snowball beyond even the immediate results of the race um, because you know people see that it's happening and they see their place in it so going forward um, I think this is the new normal and those are all guys that in four years could still be there as contenders it's not like like hypothetically on the female side like in four years, Sarah Hall may be retired just based on age alone. And so you could look at the men's list of how many guys ran sub 209 and all of them still have some of their best years of marathoning ahead of them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us will be kind of taking our last shot at 2024, you know, I'll be, I'll be 33 years old, you know, and a lot of my competitors will be there too. And so that that'll be our last shot to make an Olympic team for sure. Um, but then you also, you're going to have a whole crop of younger guys there too, who, um, are just as confident, um, going forward. And so the, yeah, the depth I think is we're just starting to see it. And as races come back and as the majors come back, it's going to be pretty crazy. Yeah. Talking about the majors next fall, um, Okay, so now, no, you've run 209.09. Frank, we talked about maybe having you PR or you debut uh, next fall. Um, no, one of the things that I've seen from you over the last couple of years is outside of just the context of going to a race, there has to be almost like an added context to really see that dial in, whether it was last year of proving yourself as a marathoner, this year establishing yourself as one of those, those fast guys, um, something like making an Olympic team when you were going into Peyton Jordan 10 K a couple of years ago, it was the, the buildup had kind of been a little bit shaky, but the way you looked on that day, there was a motivating piece. New York half contract was on the, the, the back burner. So when you have that, like 
extra context context to kind of like focus in on you're you're like it's almost like you're a caged dog ready to be released on race day and i i i said that same thing to josh the day before he's like be straight with me like how's noah how's noah looking i'm like i've never seen him this focus going into a race which was true so with that you're coming off of a 20909 performance do you see that next tier of motivation being okay, now I want to break 209 or is that next tier of motivation? I want to be top five at a major. Is that next tier of, I want to go back and try to challenge something international like a Berlin, like what do you think it's going to take for you or where do you find that motivation to kind of raise that bar a little bit more? I mean, 209.09 is faster than I ever thought I would run in my career. Um, so that's a piece of information that I still need to process. And so with that being a fact, running faster than that would be nice, but doesn't necessarily excite me right now the way it will, I think, in the future when this PR gets older. Um, but with it being so fresh, it kind of feels like the shackles of having to prove myself as a fast marathoner are kind of off. And so I think the next frontier for me is being competitive at a world major and going for that top 10 finish. Um, and in my mind, that world major is New York. Um, I've run, I have a history and a half. I would have run the full by now, but I had to pull out of it a couple of years ago or something. And so I feel like I ha I've had this history that has been leading me to the New York city marathon. And a couple of times it's just been pulled away from me. And so if the stars align getting there healthy, um, I would really like to run well there and focus on that race, you know, just finishing as high up as possible, which I always do, but it's like the time will be irrelevant on a course like that. And so that's what I think excites me next. Yeah. I think that's when I've been thinking over your race this past week, that was kind of my perception too it would be hard to turn around and say okay now i'm going to try to break 209 when 20909 is such a big milestone sigh of relief all of those things combined into one performance to me it was like okay new york potentially boston because boston being now in the fall are the oh, two yeah, that i could man. yeah are the two that i could see where time is irrelevant it's all about going out with that main field and competing over the final miles um, to, to try to place really well. Um, it is unique for Boston to be in the fall, obviously, with the pandemic. So it gives two potential high-profile races where the racing format is the center point. Um, and especially, like you mentioned, Fobble earlier being, being a good friend, that was kind of his coming out party at Boston um, where he, he was able to run his first 209. Um, mm -hmm. so those, that will be kind of fun, like trying to decide which one to do. And then the preparation for those, cause they're both, they both have Hills as part of them, but they're also different in the context of how those courses are laid out. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the racing format to me is like, okay, let's you, you now have the time. If you ended your career now, you could be content with, I'm a 209 guy, but yeah. how do we start moving up to, like you said, you still haven't tackled what it means to actually like win a race. 
Like not saying you're going to be a contender to win Boston or win New York, but putting yourself well, in that mix. I'm saying like that's <laughs> us going into yeah, it. It's like we know, we need kidding, we yeah. need to prepare we need to prepare for you for four years for Olympic trials marathon. What does it take to win? And it's going to be a different style of race than it would be with having Frank Lara out front pacing you perfectly through 20 miles. And then you guys trying to, to bring it home. Yeah. Which will be exciting. And, and Frank on that note too, with you, you saw the times this last weekend is the time, the thing that you want to establish first, or is it going into a race? Like we just talked about with New York and Boston of, you know what? I don't want to have any expectations of time. The first time I go out, I just want to go out and race and, and have a good experience at it. Well, I think the only time that it would be appropriate to focus on the time would be at an event like the marathon project was, I don't, um, if you want to have your best day on any other marathon race, you're not going to focus on that. Well, I would, I would disagree in one sense. I would say like, if you're going to a Berlin where they're going after the world record, I'm not sending you out at the world record. Fair. <laughs> now, if I'm in a position where I need to get the Olympic standard, like maybe I only focus on that and like, see how we're feeling through halfway. But, um, I see myself as someone who will be wanting to compete regardless and not worry about the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you already showed with how far you were able to pace those guys that the potential is there to be a 209, 208 guy in the future. Um, so I think you're somebody that does well when you can just kind of lock in and race. Um, and I think putting you in a similar context would, would do you well. Um, going forward this spring, we know that for you getting the Olympic standard in the 10 K is first foremost focus, um, because you were so close this past three weeks ago at this point at the sound running event, um, that obviously even before pacing the marathon project was the excitement point. Noah, do you see that as a goal for yourself too? And training alongside him trying to go for Olympic trials, 10 K. Yeah. I, I mean, I still have the goal of breaking 28, uh, for 10 K. Um, and, you know, qualifying for the trials would be meaningful to me. I don't really care about getting the Olympic standard. I'm not going to make the Olympic team at 10 K. I don't have the tools to do that, but, um, you know, to break 28 would be a significant thing for me personally. And, it would be uh, cool to be at the Olympic trials with Frank. I mean, that would be really special. That's kind of where my career took off. And I then had a very devastating race there. And so to go back with, uh, with another chance would, would be cool. Yeah. And Frank, for you going at the Olympic trials standard, obviously is, is within reach. Um, with, with something like the marathon project happening not too long ago, are you already, do you find yourself already being excited to start back into training for that 10 K or do you feel like, okay, I came close to running a marathon. I need more time. I need to process everything that just happened this fall before I actually start my buildup. I mean, I've been running one to four ish miles every day this week. Um, I'm honestly feeling pretty back together again. And I don't know. I think I, I'm excited and ready to go. I don't think I need much more uh, 
rest or I guess reflection, if you will. I think yeah, I, like, and that's well, I think that's the hard part after these longer things is just the uncertainty of how long it's going to take each individual because there is a certain amount of physical recovery that needs to happen, but there is so much that goes in to these longer buildups that mentally a lot of times the athlete needs time to recover. You at least have the benefit. You didn't have that full buildup. So it may not be as mentally taxing as it might be if you did it again this next fall. Um, but that mental recovery, I think is kind of the key point that a lot of athletes try to balance. And the toughest part with going into this next spring is also the feeling of I need to start training again, which like I mentioned earlier, Noah, for someone like yourself and Frank, I don't see you as any different. It doesn't take you guys long to get in shape and to get sharp. Um, have you guys found a sweet spot of when, like, is it one day everything just starts to click and now I feel ready to start training hard again? Or is it something like, okay, I'll, I'll do a light fart, like, and just kind of see how I feel and see if I start getting motivated. Like at what point do you feel like you are ready? For me, I, I think I'm in kind of an interesting situation because I honestly started my mental buildup two weeks before the marathon project even happened or my mental recovery. Cause I like, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't going to slack on it and like not do everything I can to, to run the pace, but it wasn't like, there was no pressure on me going in. So it was just kind of like, ah, this is fun doing this running for fun. going to help my teammates run fast. And, um, so like, I, I feel like I've been like away from the 10 K for like almost a month now. I'm just, I like kind of getting antsy. So like, I don't know, I, in terms of my body maybe isn't quite ready to hammer out any workouts or anything, but, um, I leave that up to your discretion entirely and we'll, um, I've never had a season as long as this. You've uh, pretty much been going almost all year, like with the exception of like 10 day breaks here and there. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I ha I've had a year long season after Houston, mm -hmm. I think was my like the Houston half was kind of like some downtime. And since then, we've just kind of been getting ready for the next thing, the next opportunity, which they kept popping up surprisingly enough. Um, but uh, I don't know. I definitely, I don't know. I, I, I am cautionly approaching this upcoming training block as like looking back on this because it's been a long time since I've actually taken some downtime and this week was definitely a lot of downtime and I don't know sleeping in every day not trying to get up to run just kind of like I don't know being actively lazy has been kind of the focus of the week and I've really enjoyed it yeah yeah, I mean, knowing myself and just my history, it'll probably take me at least a month to kind of dig myself out of this, like psychologically, to get back to a point where I'm excited and motivated again. Um, you know, I want to drink a couple beer, beers at noon. Like, I want to ride my bike. <laughs> like, I want to do that stuff guilt-free. I want to have a break from constantly monitoring my energy and I don't want to have to ask myself the question, how will this affect my running? Um, I just need a break from all of that. And I need a break of scanning my body constantly and asking myself how I feel. Like, I just don't want to do that shit right now. And so that, that takes me a good few weeks. 
to get out of my system. And then it's really just kind of a, a logical progression from there. I'll start running every day and then, you know, I'll feel like running harder again. And eventually I'll just kind of wake up and realize that I'm in structured training again. And it was kind of an accident. Um, and that seems to be my process for, <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah. One thing, um, and we'll, we'll finish up here cause I've kept you guys long enough on a Saturday after Christmas. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about too, Noah is you brought up before the marathon project of the idea of doubling your half marathon PR from five years ago. And you almost did that perfectly. And that spring qualifying for the Olympic trials and then the trajectory you've been on the last couple of years, somebody Frank's finding himself one year into our program now and the success that he's had this past year. And in an inconsistent year with the pandemic, we've had our by far best year as a team with three athletes running sub 62 and a half, three females running sub 72 and a half, a top 20 qualifier at the Olympic trials, a U.S. champion for the first time in Frank, a number nine all-time 209 marathoner in Noah. Aaliyah's 230, which was her first PR in four years, was I think it's ranked 56th of all time in, in women. Um, it's, it's that thing where it's like the collective nature of the team has performed well which can also be a very energizing and motivating thing. And from, for myself as a coach in, in a year that was not providing a lot of opportunities, the opportunities that we had as athletes was everyone crushed. And that was validating, exciting to see, but also motivating going into an Olympic trials year now for track and hopefully the return to world marathon majors where we can hopefully make 2021 even better from the collective nature. And you two were a big part of that, obviously with just the performances, but it's, it kind of made me reflect on that, Noah, based on you talking about doubling your half marathons, where it's like, you look back at where our team was going into the 2016 trials. It was, you, Aaliyah, Mara, and your old roommate, Tyler, as those members of the team. And now here we are, 12 deep and 10 running incredible marks. Um, pretty phenomenal progression in four years as a startup. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the team has evolved and the team has changed and a lot of people have come and go over the years. Um, but um you know, and it still is going to change going forward, but it feels at this particular juncture, like we have a lot of really solid people and a lot of really solid athletes um, who are committed to the craft and have the ability to run really well. And um, a guy like Frank, who's been having success all year and running well all year to the point where none of us are surprised by anything he does anymore, I think has been hugely motivating um, for the rest of us who maybe had fewer opportunities, but seeing him go out and capitalize on them, especially for me, because to be honest, I've never had anyone on my team at any level who 
um, is better than me, really. And uh, and Frank is, and he will be. And so that's been really special and motivating for me. I, I actually brought that up with Josh too the day before the marathon project is that, um, look, if you guys were in a race together talking about potentially a marathon in the future or 10 Ks this spring, like you both when the gun goes off, like you guys are competitors, it's, it's a, it's a comforting thing to have somebody that you're familiar with there next to you, but you still want to beat each other. But somebody like Frank that's performing at such a high level, I think has also like, it, it, it has helped center you. It's helped like motivate you. It's like you guys, you, you both are so talented and I don't care in the slightest who runs what, as long as you both are running fast. But I think one of the benefits of having someone like Frank there is it's not just Frank being talented, but Frank's personality with zero ego, like it doesn't conflict at all with what you guys are both trying to do. And I think that is rare to find where it's like, like you said, you've never had someone faster. Frank, you have had someone faster in your past with, with teammates, but the ego can sometimes cloud that relationship a lot of times and you guys being having the ability to be pretty symbiotic when you guys are working out together has, I think helped both of you significantly this fall. Yeah. I don't think I would be where I am without having the company I've had from Noah and everyone else on the team as well. Um, I, I want to pose this question to you, Noah. Do you think it's a coincidence that our like team's plethora of success kind of started when I joined the team, or do you think it is that like, is there any causality we can point to? Uh, you know, I, I think it's definitely because you joined when you did. I don't see how there could be any possible explanation otherwise. I mean, just the life force that you bring to practice, Frank. I brought and, Austin too. And Austin, let's not forget Austin and, and his positive vibes. Uh, no, I mean, it, yeah, Frank was a, a shot in the arm uh, for sure for this team. And um, just another success story that you can look at. It was like, here's a guy who works like super hard and is achieving things that we all want to achieve, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it's motivating to have one of those guys so close to you. And I've, I, I, the culture to me has been the biggest thing that as much as like coaches like to take credit for success of the team, a, a, a huge, if not the majority part of that is the blending of personalities. And I feel like the, the personalities that we have on the team, it's, it's tough it's tough to want to disrupt that at all with anybody new because you guys know you made the comment I think it was a year year and a half ago when it came to new people coming on like you really won't make the effort to learn somebody's name until they're here for a year and it, it was like it was a joke but it's like at the same time it's that thing of like so, like you've been here five years Aliyah's not going anywhere but Aliyah outside of that was the longest athlete Willie's now been here for four years and this February, our two newest athletes will have been here a year, but everybody else had been here for two years plus at that point. So 
the consistency of the personalities, you guys learn each other. You guys are friends outside of practice. You guys text each other to meet up on easy runs. Like you genuinely like and care about one another, which I think is one of the, the things that has significantly helped the performance level too, because you all take credit and have a hand in each other's successes. And you, you feel the pain of failures just as much. Yeah, I've been having a great time at practice, this, especially this year. And, you know, since this is my job, you know, this is how I make my living, you know, enjoying work is huge and enjoying my coworkers is huge. Um, and so I've been, yeah, really thankful for that this year. I want to echo what Noah said. Thank you, Frank. Well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time to kind of talk through some of the stuff. Um, there's a, there's a lot of other questions, topics that I was going to start to, to dive into here, but for the sake of time, maybe we can, we can talk about some of those at practice and decide if these are ones that we should bring up as future podcast episodes, but, um, congratulations to, uh, Frank on a, a big year. And then Noah, obviously a very historic moment, number nine, all time, 209 marathoner, fastest D three runner of all time, like pretty, pretty exciting. And, and I mean, like I said, we had set the goal of sub 210 as the goal when I first started coaching you. And now it's like finding, finding new milestones, new territories to, to dive into. We're just riding this one out for a few years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's on the table too. Yeah. <laughs> Richie, pretty, Richie, how have your goals changed coming off the weekend? Like, do you want to have three 209 marathoners now at a time or like what, what has changed for you? I mean, you know, what's funny is last January when you three guys ran sub 62 and I thought Noah's like Noah and I were texting each other after that race. Like I thought breaking 62 minutes was hard. And here, like we just had three guys on the team do it in one race. Like the, the depth of American running has improved, but it's also that thing. Like I never intended to be a coach. And so like seeing the, being able to coach athletes of your caliber is such a mind blowing thing for myself, because especially when you're starting a group from scratch, like you'd never anticipate saying, okay, I'm going to eventually be coaching some of the fastest runners in us history, let alone potential Olympic qualifiers and it's not just now about like the expectation now for everybody on the group is you should be qualifying for the olympic trials not just like hopefully that's our seasonal goal of we have some olympic trial qualifiers it's like no that should be the expectation now and that level has raised from 2016 when qualifying for the trials for noah and Aaliyah were such huge performances now it's like to us, it seems almost like foregone conclusions. Like, yeah, you just got to get in the right race and you'll qualify. Now it's a matter of what we do once we're there. And I think that just as it was, Noah, for you coming to terms with the sponsorship was something you had to, to wrap your head around. It's the same for myself as a coach. Um, and like for a while, it when we were first establishing the group, it's like, okay, how do we get sponsorship? And then it's like, no, I don't effing care about sponsorship anymore. Like I want, I want it for you guys because of what it helps to ease the pain financially. But it's also, if we're helping everyone run really fast and potentially 
become contenders as Olympians and people have the ability to individually get sponsored, like that's pretty gratifying too. That I don't know. I, I think I would, I would be hard pressed to find another unsponsored group in the country that has the success that we do consistently. But even aside from that, we are consistently performing with some of the top groups in the country um, at those longer distances. And that's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's two years ago would have seemed a stretch to say that now we have a 2744 10 care and a 209 marathoner and they're different people in the same unsponsored group. Like that, that is pretty exciting. It's now like, it's very, it's motivating for me because now it's like, how do we get the rest of the group to catch up to that? Um, but then it's also, uh, how do we push that bar even further outside of just what it means financially and sponsorship stuff, but just like letting each of you make your own mark within the sport, I think is something that's pretty exciting. So it's, it, I think it's, it's, it's coming to terms with it initially is always difficult, but then like, it's, it's pretty motivating, rewarding in the moment. And then it's also like, okay, well, the expectation is now there. So how do we, how do we repeat that again? So. Good question, Frank. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, on that long solo sidebar, um, we'll leave it there and uh, start getting ready for 2021. But Sounds good. I, yeah, I, I can't tell you guys enough how how proud I am of you. And Noah, especially you having one race to kind of show 2020 was worth it and absolutely demolishing that one race is pretty inspiring. Pretty so, good rust buster. Some pretty good rust buster. <laughs> let's uh let's go into 2021 with uh with some good vibes. Let's bust some rust. Yeah. Well, nice job, guys, and I'll talk to you next year. Bye. 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 Bye.